Uh, Father, thank you again for the gospel. We thank you for your uh, gracious provision of your son. And as we jump into that topic right now, um, things that probably we already know or have heard at some level, would you overwhelm us again with the gift of your son and the mechanics of what you have done and are doing to grow us uh, to be like him? We want to honor him, not just in theological precision today, but we want to honor him in affection and in a growing love for you and a love for your word that would uh, direct us again to to be like Christ. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, we're going to tackle two questions here, as we often do. Um, We have, in order to get all the questions in, we've got to cram some of them uh, into one lesson, and uh, this should not be super, super new material, but I can't tell you as I continue to work with students year after year how critical it is that you've got your theological ducks in a row when it comes to justification versus sanctification. I remember years ago, um, since several years now, working with a young man who was struggling with uh, obsessive thinking. Uh, if he had gone to his local psychiatrist, I'm sure he would have gotten a, a, an obsessive compulsive diagnosis. And and uh, I can just remember how so much of the guilt that he carried in terms of his struggles was related to this doctrine. And I'll explain to you what I mean. So um, sometimes people that struggle with obsessive thoughts, intrusive thoughts, are people that are... Um, you know, a horrible idea comes into their mind. Um, I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden I have the thought of what if I get distracted, veer off the road and kill a child? And that that just pops into their head as they're driving down the road. And then what happens is that thought becomes a source of great obsession and fear and guilt and then, of course, the, the compulsion side of the OCD cycle is what can I do to lessen the pain that that obsessive thought is generating inside of me? The fear of doing that, the fear of avoiding that. Um, and in extreme cases, I'm not going to drive my car anymore. I'm not even going to go out of my house anymore because I don't want to unintentionally hurt somebody. And that, that's, that's the spiral of obsessive compulsive thinking. And you can imagine with somebody that, that's wrestling with a thought that they are obsessing over that um, that would really affect how they think about themselves as professing believers. And in the case of the guy I was working with, he would have a thought like, what if I run the car off and kill a child? He would obsess over that thought. Fears would flood his mind in terms of not wanting to do that and the guilt he would experience if he did and then how he could mitigate that guilt that um, that he began to wonder, you know, am, am I even saved because I'm thinking crazy? And whether that's the expression or whether it's garden variety, normal struggles that you and I face, um, it is very easy to use our progress in sanctification as the determiner as to whether or not we're really converted. Does that make sense? And, and you know, I, I, I assume you and I all struggle with that in seasons where we might be really struggling with sin or we might look back on something with regret. And how could I do that? And 
And we begin to wonder, is that fumble of sanctification disqualify me from conversion? Or since we probably have better theology from that, maybe we would probably say something like this. Is how I responded in this situation indicate that I was never truly saved? And that's not a bad question. But you can understand if you're not standing on solid theological ground as you investigate that for yourself or in a very complicated situation like obsessive compulsive disorder or something like that, if you don't have a clear understanding of that to navigate you through helping somebody unscramble all that, you're not going to be helpful. And uh, you might actually become part of the problem with someone like that yeah there, there's a form of ocd our friend brendan osterberg has written on it called scrupulosity it's sort of a religious ocd and one of the things that some people caught up in that end up with is an obsession with the fact that they committed the unpardonable sin and i don't know if you've ever met somebody or talked to somebody like that i, I i've had many occasions over the years to talk with people like that and they, they obsess with the fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin and uh, and that comes back to what we believe about justification and sanctification in terms of navigating them through that. So, yes, this is a theological exercise. Yes, this is going to help you do better on the uh, systematic theology for 300 uh, in the spiritual jeopardy category. Um, but more than that, this is going to help you and I to help hurting people who are in great distress over their spiritual condition in the midst of complicated counseling problems. And this is this is where you start in terms of spiritual sanity to navigate through that. All right, so with that in mind, let's remind ourselves about justification. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2? And uh, let's, let's, just, uh, let's just revel in wonderful beautiful truths that we already know can we do that can we just marinate a few more it's like brisket you know just leave it on for a few more hours it gets better right that's what we're going to do with our meditation on justification here you're going to walk away go pastor key said justification is like brisket i know i know that's not um number 16 on the counseling or excuse me the theological exam the theology exam define faith in terms of explaining its relationship to justification and sanctification So that gets us into the topic of those two aspects of salvation as well as thinking about the nature of faith. And uh, so let's just think about that. Uh, A sort of classic definition, justification is an instantaneous legal declaration of God whereby he pronounces the person trusting Christ as not guilty but righteous because of the finished work of Christ on his behalf. And uh, you can read Grudem, you can read Erickson, you can read Frame, you can read Burkhoff, and they're all going to say something very similar to that. Okay, so the the picture here, of course, is is God. Not with that pen, we're not. Um, there we go. That's better. So we can picture God, sort of sitting at the desk, the judge's bench. He's got his. Uh, He's got the gavel of heaven ready to make a verdict. And here's you and I. We're standing before God. And because we have committed sin, there is the clear problem of guilt that stands over us 
God, the lawgiver, has given us his law. We are made in his image and likeness to obey that law and follow him. Our sin is the breaking of that law, rendering us guilty in the courtroom of God. And and remember, guilt in the Bible is legal culpability. It's not how you feel about something. Feelings of guilt are distinct from the reality of guilt, which is a legal, objective reality that we have broken the law of God. And of course, we, we would say, God, who is just and righteous, who never makes any mistakes, who is completely holy and right, what verdict must he render to sinful people like you and me who have really broken God's law and thus have uh, are legally culpable in the courtroom of God, God must declare us guilty. He must declare us guilty, right? Uh, you say, well, then what hope do we have? Well, well, the hope is that a second Adam comes and he lives a perfect life of righteousness keeping the law of God. That's why Jesus didn't come from heaven and go right to the cross. He came to Bethlehem. He grew, walked with God in dependence on the Holy Spirit, fully keeping the law of God, the moral law of God, to earn righteousness in conformity to the law of God. And then, of course, he goes to the cross to die and make payment for the sins of people. So the question is, in the courtroom of God, what if, what if, okay, so I guess red is the color we're going to use today. I don't have any other pens here. So you're stuck with red. What if Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law of God that active obedience, as theologians call it, what if that righteousness, that perfect life of God, of, of Jesus, could be transferred to the account of the sinner so that the record of Christ gets deposited to... Oh, Betsy, thank you. Thank you so much. So that the record of Christ gets credited to my account. Right? And what if my sin and the guilt and punishment I deserve could be transferred to Jesus so that he bears my debt? He bears the wrath that I deserve. He pays the payment that you and I ought to pay. What if in the, in the spiritual arithmetic, Christ's righteousness could really be transferred to the account of the sinner and the sin and guilt and judgment deserving of sinners could be actually transferred to the account of Jesus and he pays for it. Could God render a different verdict in his court? Right? Could God make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him? 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? And the answer is yes. If that transaction happens, then without compromising his justice in any way, God can actually pronounce the sinner not guilty, but righteous. When God makes that rendering in his court, because the person trusting in Christ has received 
Christ's righteousness and, and our sin and the guilt of it has been transferred to the account of Christ and paid for. When that transaction occurs, the person trusting in Christ, God can render a not guilty verdict but righteous. What do we call that when God does that? We call that justification. Make sense? It's courtroom language. You know this. But you have to be able to fall out of bed groggy and without your coffee yet and be able to know this stuff because you will lean on this in ways you won't even recognize when you're caring for somebody uh, in a counseling context. Okay, so that's what we mean we're talking about uh, justification. Now, when we say faith, what is faith? Faith is... The active trust, dependence, reliance upon, or confidence in Christ and his work before God. It is just because Christ lived a perfect life and just because he went to the cross does not automatically affect all sinners. There has to be some connection between the sinner and Christ. And that, that connection, that connection point is faith alone, isn't it? The reformers called faith the instrumental cause of our justification. The instrumental cause. You say, what does that mean? It was was their way of saying faith is the instrument by which we access the work of Christ. Okay? Let's say we went on a field trip and we went to the mecca of Christian fast food called Chick-fil-A. It is the Christian chicken. It is the Jesus bird. It is the sanctified meal that every Christian knows, right? And let's say we went into Chick-fil-A here in Granbury and we got us a wonderful frosted lemonade. And uh, the frosted lemonade is the dessert, it is the Christian dessert, I guess, if you're really a follower of Jesus. And, um, right, and this is great. It is an awesome beverage. It's lemonade, it's frozen, it's kind of like a slush, but it's not. It's kind of like a smoothie, but it's better. And, uh, and we're going to revel in the glory of a frosted lemonade. And then uh, the Chick-fil-A employee brings that out and hands us a Chick-fil-A authentic straw. My pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. No, I only need one straw, really. My pleasure, right? And you got three straws and 28 napkins and eight Chick-fil-A sauces that you're not going to use in your frozen lemonade, but your frosted lemonade. And uh, let's say that we sat there and I pulled out my straw and I said, man, th- this, is, this is the best straw in the universe, right? Th- this is a Chick-fil-A straw. This is a Christian straw. And uh, McDonald's, Taco Bell, uh-uh. Yeah, we have a Christian straw. And, and I, sat, I sat there and, and while you're enjoying your lemonade, I am just caught up in the beauty, the glory of the instrument by which we access the frosted lemonade. You see, that'd be pretty silly to do that. It'd be, pre- it'd be pretty to get all excited about the straw because the glory is in the frosted lemonade, right? That's, that's where the action is. So that's how we need to think about faith as our instrumental cause, right? Faith is the straw. It is the vehicle by which the believer accesses the work of Christ. 
And that's why the reformers made a big deal out of this. They're saying it's the instrument, it's the straw, it's the pipe or conduit by which we access the work of Christ. There's nothing salvific about the straw. There's nothing about faith that contributes to your salvation. It's just the conduit, right? It's just the instrument. And the reformers distinguished that from what they called the substantive cause of justification. The instrumental cause is what? Faith, right? Faith. The substantive cause is the completed, finished work of Christ. Make sense? So when you think about your justification, don't get overly excited about the straw. Don't get overly excited about the instrument, right? It's necessary, right? Faith is important, but that's not what is contributing to salvation. It's only the access point to access Christ, and he is the one that we... um, uh, we, we look to and lean on for his work. I remember years ago, I, we have some uh, some of my Civil Air Patrol uh, cadets here, and I remember years ago, we got to go up to uh, Air Force Base in Oklahoma and go on a, a actual aerial refueling mission. So we got to go up in one of these big tanker jets, right, which is basically, uh, it's a big jet, and it's got a big gas can in it. Actually, it's got a bunch of gas cans in it. And um, and the way this works is they go up to altitude and then there's another plane in need of fuel. And this is the craziest thing the, you know, we were actually got to look out the window. So you got this guy in the back of the refueling plane. He's got a little window. He's got an instrument panel and he's got the straw. What, what in the Air Force they call a boom. And it's this big, long uh, conduit. And then in craziest thing in the world, the other plane actually pulls up on the tanker so you've got two huge jets within just a few feet of one another and you're going that airplane's way too close right planes aren't supposed to be that close and and literally that pilot brings that plane in need of fuel right up to the refueling jet and then this boom operator as the air force calls him sits in the back and he's got controls and he flies that boom and puts that that fuel receptacle right into the uh the, the the gas I don't know the terminology here, right? His boom, he puts that right in the receptacle on the other airplane. And then they flip on the switches and they refuel the plane. It's like, that's crazy. It's awesome crazy is what it is. And Have you guys gotten to do one of those yet? Okay. So I, my son, when he was younger, we got to do that together. And uh, and you think that, that that's exactly it, right? That, that's the picture of justification. You you have a need, right? That, that plane needs fuel or it's going to crash. It's not going to be able to do the mission. You have the tanker. That's the work of Christ. He's done all the work. But somehow you've got to get the fuel from the tanker to the plane in need. And that is that boom, right, which represents the instrumental cause, right, the faith. Okay? So you're going to be thinking about uh, Air Force missions and Chick-fil-A straws for the rest of the day, which is what I want you to do. Okay, now, you have Second Corinthians, or Second, or, well, Ephesians, there you go. Ephesians chapter 2 open there. Let's remind ourselves of what we've just talked about, right? How do we know that that, that is true? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay, so let's just... Let's just break down what justification is, and this text is very helpful to see that, and then I've given you some other cross-references there. First of all, note with me that 
this justification, this first part of salvation is, according to this text, a gift of God, right? You've been by grace, you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, now a footnote on that. You can't see it in the English, but the pronouns that Paul actually use here clarifies that it's not just the salvation that is the gift of God. It is the whole transaction of conversion that is the gift of God. You say, what does that mean? It is the saving work of God that is grace. It is, or that is a gift. It is the faith that you and I exercise, the straw, right, to the conduit to access the work of Christ. Even the faith is part of the gift. You know, it's part of the gift. It's not like, uh, you know, you go to Chick-fil-A and you, you, you get your frosted lemonade, right? There it is. And they say, um, okay, enjoy. And you're like, do, do I get a free straw with that? Oh, no, you've got to pay for the straw. That's extra for the straw, right? Well, they don't do that. The, the straw is part of the transaction. It comes with, with the, uh, the, the gift, so to speak, of the frosted lemonade. So salvation, and specifically justification, that, that first part of salvation, is the gift from God, including the faith itself. Now, footnote. The faith is part of the gift, but we still utilize the gift. Right? We, we still utilize the faith. We, we must trust in Christ alone for salvation. But the important thing to see here is that even our ability to trust Christ is a part of the gift that God gives us. Does that make sense? Okay. Our faith is not some human contribution that we bring. Right? It, it's, it's not of our own doing. That's what he's saying here. Even faith, though we must exercise it, is part of the gift. Secondly, notice that justification is not by works. He makes that explicit there, right? Not as a result of works, lest any man may boast. And that clarifies that even faith is part of the gift, right? Because he's saying that's not even a work. Of course, in the Bible, when we talk about a work in the context of conversion, we're talking about something that people are doing on their own, so to speak, to contribute to their justification. And Paul is explicit here. No, it's all a gift. It's not by works. We don't contribute anything in that regard. And, and notice, it is by grace alone. This is the testimony of the whole Bible. For by grace you have been saved. That word, of course, means an unmerited favor. Uh, this is something that is undeserved but freely given. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is how we think about it. As we mentioned, faith alone is the instrument we see that there, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Pronouns are important. Grace is the motivation. Grace is the means, right? Grace is the work of Christ, as we talked about it here. But that grace, that salvation, that work of Christ is accessed through what? Through the instrument of faith. So, so that, little pro, that little preposition, through, is very significant. Okay, by faith alone or through faith alone. As we mentioned there on your notes, faith is the instrumental cause of justification. It provides the access. It's the theological drinking straw by which we access the merits of Christ. Secondly, Christ's work is the foundation or what the reformers called the substantive cause of justification. Christ actually achieved the merits and works necessary to save us and justify us. Accessed by faith, but accomplished by Christ. And of course, all of this is in Christ alone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone, everyone, 
so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus right that that there again there's those prepositions again in Christ so we say by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone you got it by grace through faith in Christ and all of those are important in terms of how we think about it now again that's probably a review but isn't that awesome can we just you know stop and thank the lord and say lord thank you for for saving us giving us this gift thank you for providing your son that we do not deserve and and, and even you even provide the drinking straw so that we can access the work of christ and we praise him and thank him for it okay so so that's what we're thinking about we think about justification and, and remember part of what you're you're doing here in this question is you're talking about the role of faith so with justification faith is the instrumental cause uh, for our salvation in justification okay so let's uh, transition now talk about sanctification this gets into 19 as well as what we'll come back we'll circle back and talk about faith's role in sanctification so theology exam 19 explain the biblical categories of past present and future sanctification if you've taken a fundamentals course which i think all of you have we talk about sanctification and this is no different than the notes that we talk about in fundamentals but let's just review it Uh, Wayne Grudem defines sanctification, meaning progressive sanctification, as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And we know that according to the Bible, sanctification comes in three aspects. Three aspects. There's a positional, there's a progressive, there's a perspective, or if you prefer, a past, present, and future dimension. So let me just review those briefly with you. If you're still in Ephesians, uh, just uh, back up a little bit into 1 Corinthians. What's what's hard about this, guys, is even though there are three distinct aspects of sanctification in the Bible, the biblical authors don't always tip us off about that. They expect you and I as the reader to be paying attention and recognize which aspect of sanctification is being mentioned. You see, well, how do we do that? We pay attention to the context. Right, We pay attention to context. So Paul, writing with Sosthenes to the Corinthians, this first letter, he says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who, now notice the, the language here, have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He, he actually... Um, He actually uses two words here that are drawn from the same root. Have been sanctified is the verb. Saints is one of the noun forms. Saints means holy ones, sanctified ones. So he actually is saying in two different ways here, you've already been sanctified. You've already been sanctified. This is the work that God does when a believer trusts in Christ for salvation. For a believer, this is the past fact of sanctification which occurred at his conversion. You say, what does that mean? Yes. So what's the difference between justification and sanctification? Ah, ah, that's a great question. What's the difference between justification and sanctification? Justification is the legal part of it where God says not guilty but righteous because of Christ. Sanctification, remember the word sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. So in justification, God says not guilty, righteous. In sanctification, he says mine. I'm I'm bringing you in as my own. I'm sanctifying you. I'm pulling you out for my own special purpose. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so they occur at the same time, but they are different. Okay, so that's the positional aspect of sanctification. The progressive uh, part of sanctification, you guys know this, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, namely your sanctification, right? So even though we have been sanctified, God says, I've set you apart for my holy purposes. God now says, okay, that, that's, your, that's your purpose. Now go live your purpose. Live holy in your actual lives the position that I've already given you. We have a positional sanctification, positional holiness. Now live that out in actual practice. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, as we put off the old man and put on the new, as we walk in light of our salvation, that we grow progressively in sanctification and holiness. And of course, in biblical counseling, this is usually where we're, we're parked, right? We're, we're thinking about that most of all, dealing with Christian counselees. And then finally, we have prospective sanctification or final sanctification, future sanctification. This is the instantaneous work that God does to complete sanctification by perfectly conforming the believer to the image and likeness of Christ at his death. And, and really, we, we would think about glorification. Uh, you know, Christ comes back first, or we go to be with him, that one day we will possess a glorified body where we are perfectly imaging Christ in our bodies as well as our spirits. The Bible calls that um, glorification or the future hope. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 talks about God transforming the body of our humble state into a, bo- into a, into a body that conforms with his glory. Uh, Paul talks to the Corinthians as well later on in our chapter here in chapter 15. Uh, he says, you know, we, we, I'll tell you the mystery, right? We're not all going to sleep. We're going to be changed. And uh, he talks about the, the future glorification of believers. We, we call that future or perspective sanctification. So let's review. Past sanctification happens at our conversion. God says, mine, right? I'm setting you apart for my purpose. You are holy. I've declared you holy. And, uh, and that is your, that is your uh, position. That's how I'm going to relate to you. Then God says in progressive sanctification, go be who you are. I've set you apart for this. Go work out your sanctification. Go grow in holiness every day. And then one day when Christ returns, we go to be with him. God will complete the work that he started. And watch this. Our practice will now perfectly align with our position. In other words, our actual life will align perfectly with God's declaration that we are holy. Um, That's glorification. Uh, And if you want a diagram, which I know you do, uh, we have a, a way of viewing this. If we picture this yellow bar representing perfect holiness and Christ-likeness, if we let this dimension here describe beer, being spiritually dead, lacking spiritual life in our fallenness and sin, and the slavery to sin with which that uh, goes with, and if we picture the, uh, the upper part of the graph here as being spiritually alive, we can talk about the fact that we all come into the world and we're down here, right? We're spiritually dead. That's Ephesians 2, right? You, you, were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were a slave to sin, the Bible tells us, which means, you know, there's some really nice unbelievers and you can kind of progress as an unbeliever. I mean, there's nicer unbelievers and lesser nice unbelievers. But the reality is it doesn't matter whether you're, you're getting better as an unbeliever or not because you're still spiritually dead. Uh, that yellow arrow represents the moment of conversion. And at that moment of conversion, 
God instantaneously sanctifies. That's the past aspect of sanctification where this dotted line representing our position, representing God's ownership of us, he says perfectly holy and Christ-like. Now, that's important to see because it is on the basis of our position that God relates to us. That's important to see. Um, Even though we are not like Christ perfectly in our practice, God has already declared us to be perfectly holy and Christ-like in our position. So, Melissa, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah, so is appropriating our faith, is that part of... Let me talk about that uh, when we get to the, the notes right after this. We'll talk about how that works, okay? Great question. I'm glad you're thinking ahead there. Okay, so right now that dotted line, that represents uh, the believer's position in Christ, okay? And then if we talk about actual practice, well, what happens? We come out of darkness into light, right? We go from spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. But you notice we're not super Christians yet. We're not perfectly like Christ in our practice. In fact, we're actually down here somewhere. We go, whoa, wait a minute. What is this? And a lot of Christians are really actually kind of shocked that when they become a Christian, it's like, man, I still struggle with sin. I still fall into sin. I'm still tempted to sin. There's something wrong. And that's where we come alive and say, actually, no, this is normal Christianity. There's a past, there's a present, there's a future. You're at the present which means you're going to be growing progressively in holiness, right? So this is how it works, right? And this is this is the jagged line of sanctification. You know how it is. You know we're growing, and then you know you go to that CBCD conference, you read that book, you know, you, you go to the Shepherds Conference, you, you attend that seminar, and you know Pastor Stephen Yule pe- preaches that great message, and boom, you know you're right. You're like this is awesome, and then uh, you climb that, and then you have one of those weeks. And you go, oh no, there's something wrong. What happened? I'm struggling with sin. I've fallen back in an old sin pattern. Man, I've got to repent again. Can I just say this? You should not be shocked that you have to repent. You know, when you go to your spouse and say, I'm so sorry. I I said something that was really hurtful. Will you please forgive me? If you're the spouse, you shouldn't be like, oh, what happened? You know, like, like that's some like horrible, weird thing. Luther was right in his first of the 95 theses when he declared that the normative Christian life is one of continual repentance. You know, thinking repentance is weird is, is a bit like saying, you know, I'm really, really, really shocked that my car starts up in the morning. Because without the engine turning, you're not going to go anywhere, right? Right? You don't sit in the parking lot and go, okay, this is awesome. You know, the, 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 that's the repentance is the engine of Christian change. It's how you get to where you want to go in terms of a walk with God. So we really have a, a wrong view of repentance, I think, where we think it's like this. It's the nuclear option, right? Oh, OK, I really, really, really blew it. I was doing so good. And now I've got to repent. When in reality, normal, healthy Christianity is a life of continual repentance. In fact, in fact, and you young theologians need to get this. I think sometimes when we're young, you think when, I, when I'm old, you know, when, when I'm as godly as Pastor Brian Gaines or someone like that, I'm not going to have to repent very much. When in reality, mature Christians for millennia of church history have said, actually, the more you grow in Christ and mature in Christ, the more you realize you actually have to repent more. Because it's not just 
obvious sins. It's things like thoughts and desires and temptations and things that I got to deal with in here. So the more you mature in Christ, really, the more you see the necessity of regular repentance. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so, repentance. Yes. Right. And then you're walking in a complete different direction. Yes. So you're expected not to struggle. So I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. That's a positional statement. That's saying you're a new creature in your position. And then Paul's going to go on to say in subsequent parts of 2 Corinthians, now live out your position. So... Your question about repentance, initial repentance is when I turn from my sin initially to God for help, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That's initial repentance. But ongoing repentance in the life of the Christian is really no different. I'm always turning away from sin. I'm always turning to Christ for help. I'm always reaffirming faith in Christ with the goal of going in a different direction. So repentance in that regard is the same. The difference is, I have a confidence that I am a new creature, that that God has saved me and redeemed me and declared me holy. And so I have a humble confidence that as I repent and turn to Christ for help to grow through that sin that I'm dealing with, that uh, I'm, I'm in the family of God. I have the Holy Spirit. I am a new creature, positionally speaking. And so therefore, I have a humble confidence that I can make progress with his help. I read one of the Puritans on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, maybe we can talk about that. Yeah. You know, sometimes, uh, we love the Puritans, I love the Puritans. Um, sometimes Puritans in their zeal to, you know, kind of hammer home a particular truth, if you just focus on that and you don't read some of the other things that they've read, you can come away with an imbalanced view. So sometimes I know when I read my favorite Puritans, I get that too. Um, but I think that's a, that's a function of the fact that they were very thorough and and a function of the fact that we need to read what they believed broadly and not just narrowly, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and of course, the Puritans weren't perfect either. But um, okay, so this is normal. This is normal sanctification, right? Good days, bad days, good days, bad days. Oh, that's not too bad of a day. Okay, and and so that is the normal Christian life. Um, I, I love to ask uh, groups this: Is your Christian life a squiggly line? Is it a squiggly line? Uh, mine is, and and I, you know, most Christians I talk to, they say, yeah, that, that's that's what my life is like. It's hard to admit that sometimes. So here's the here's the purpose. Here's the point. Our Christian life is not linear. It's not like straight line. The question is, are you making progress? See what happens is, go back to my friend that had the OCD uh, issues. He was looking at this data point and saying, I can't be a Christian because he had come from this data point. And he was failing to see that the overall trend of the graph was actually going toward Christ-likeness. So, so for you math people, it's the slope of the line that's important. Okay, It's the rise over run, right? It, it's, it's the pattern here. It's not any particular data set along the way. So sorry to bring math into it, um, he thought. 
No math this weekend. It's the CBCD conference. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so here it goes. It's the slope of the line. It's the progress, okay? And what I usually tell believers that are struggling is a Christian life is one of progress, looking for a growing pattern. It is not about perfection, okay? It's a progress. We're looking for a pattern. It's not about perfection. And um, if, if you want to help somebody to understand that, I think the book of 1 John is a great place to go where that is made explicit. Okay, so what are we saying? We're saying sanctification. There's a positional aspect, instantaneous, the moment conversion occurs where God declares you holy and Christ-like in your position. Then there's a practice dimension. This is progressive sanctification where we grow up and down all around along the way toward actual Christ-likeness in our lives. All of that terminates literally in our death where our faith becomes sight and you say what is final sanctification it's when our practice finally aligns with our position so we can think of what we're trying to do in the counseling room is we're trying to move the ball down the field so that a person's practice of sanctification is approaching their position of sanctification okay make sense and uh, we usually call that justification, right? Because that's, that's our conversion here. Uh, more rightly, we would say that's past sanctification, that's progressive sanctification, and that's future sanctification, or what we call glorification. Okay, you guys have seen this before? Does that make sense? Okay. And uh, this chart, uh, Grudem has a chart that's similar. Some of the other theologians have a chart that's similar. So I'm, that's my effort to try to visually represent what the biblical data illustrates. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go back to Melissa's question and talk about how does this work out? How do we appropriate our position? So turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2 and let's talk about how this actually fleshes out. And again, this is where you're going to be dealing with people that are wondering, am I really a Christian? Did I lose my salvation? Uh, I'm struggling with sin. How can I truly be converted? And, and all the rest. So, so this... What This material is your navigational aid to help you through those hard conversations. And, and you really do have to know this stuff really, really good. So Philippians chapter 2, Paul has already mentioned uh, you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He's talked about that in chapter 1. He gets to chapter 2. He talks about Christ's work and uh, our need to follow his example of humility, considering others is more important. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, he fleshes out for us the mechanics of how we would actually do that. How, how would we actually emulate Christ in our sanctification? Chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Spiritual growth is both God's work and the believer's responsibility. It is God's work and the believer's responsibility. And, and we need to be careful even with the language that we use there. Let's look at our text and notice, first of all, the believer is called to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. That makes a lot of Christians nervous because works are not supposed to be a part of salvation. Well, that's true when you're talking about justification, conversion. But Paul here is using salvation in the broadest sense. And he really has in mind the sanctification part of salvation. He's not talking about the conversion part of salvation. He's talking about the working out your Christian life part. So we, we can rightly call that 
work out your sanctification, which is very clear by context. And that sounds like uh, we have a responsibility, doesn't it? There are a lot of Christians who have erroneously been taught that you are, quote unquote, supposed to let go and let God. Which means uh, I just sit around and God magically turns me into a mature Christian. And while that viewpoint is noble in the sense that it is trying to guard against sort of legalistic works righteousness efforts at sanctification, letting go and letting God is just not a biblical doctrine of sanctification. No reading of the New Testament uh, would lead you to that without really having to avoid verses like this. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that the believer is active in the sanctification process. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Ephesians 4, 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, uh, speaking the truth in love, right? Grow up in all aspects into him. That, that sounds like work, doesn't it? Um, and, and secondly, not only is the believer called to be active it requires significant daily effort and work. The, the, the Bible describes this. Get this, guys. The Bible describes the normal Christian life using terms like this. A conflict, a race, a fight, a war. The Bible never describes the Christian life as a vacation, as a holiday, as a gentle stroll through the park on a nice fall day, right? Um, in fact, the language and the imagery used is extreme, isn't it? Paul says, I box, you know, to, to keep myself from getting beat up, right? I run in such a way that I may win. Um, he says, I fight, um, I go to war, he says, right? 2 Corinthians 10, right? We don't war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our war for are powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we go, man, there's all these G.I. Joe terms all over the Bible when it talks. Do you know G.I. Joe? Probably not. Ask your parents. Um, you know, they're, they're the G.I. Joe terms of the Bible. They're these military terms. And, and, um, and so what we see here is uh, the reality that the Christian life is not just one of daily effort and work, but it uses imagery of an athletic contest, of a, of a soldier going into battle, uh, of sweating it out in a gym, of fighting in a boxing arena, in running an Olympic race. And all of those things, whether you're an athlete or a soldier, those are, those are arenas that require great discipline, great work, great effort, great training. And uh, the Christian life is one of such uh, as those things. Okay, So we've we got to get the right picture. If, uh, if you are not actively striving in your walk with God every day that looks something like what an athlete would do or a soldier preparing for battle would do, I can guarantee you, you're not growing. Not very much. Um, and it's because we, we, haven't, we haven't taken seriously the call. So it is. It's a matter of working out salvation, right? It's a matter of being active in, in daily effort and work. And yet, look at the next part of the verse. As the believer works and strives and seeks to obey and is active in the process, look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So the Bible is saying here that even as the believer works, he is dependent on God who ultimately is at work in him. Notice uh, three elements of the verse here. God gives the believer the desire to grow. God gives the believer all he needs to grow. And God is pleased in helping the believer grow. Think about that. Those are, those are important for counseling, right? Paul is claiming that all believers have the work of God in them that produces a desire to grow. Every now and then, and maybe you've met people like this, I meet a professing believer who has no interest at all in growing in their spiritual life. They just don't care. You know, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I trusted Jesus, but I just I don't really care. And maybe they say that explicitly, or maybe the testimony of their life is they don't really care. What do you think about that in light of what Paul's saying here? Betsy, what do you think? Oh, you weren't going to answer that. What were you going to say? Uh-huh. Well, that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking. is Because Paul is claiming God works in the believer to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will means he has a desire to grow. So if you meet somebody who professes Christ and they have no desire to grow or the testimony of their life is they have no desire to grow, that's a problem. And we need to come alongside that person and say, hey, I love you, I care about you, I, I know you're professing faith, but I just I don't see any desire to grow. Now, now, a footnote, it may be that they've been in a horrible church their whole life. They've been poorly taught or they've been wrongly taught. And, and that's undermining that God-given desire to grow. But, but, but we have to take the text seriously and say, even though all those things may be true, as we come alongside and maybe better educate and, and better help them to understand the scriptures, there's got to be a desire to grow. All true Christians want to be more like Christ. And there's, there, there's no category in the Bible that says, here's a real Christian that doesn't want to be like Jesus. That, that is a, a fictitious category. And, uh, and you'll meet people like that in counseling. Notice, secondly, God gives the believer all that he needs to grow. This is our doctrine of sufficiency again, right? The Bible gives everything we need, Christ's power for life and godliness. And I love this last part. God is pleased in helping the believer grow. Uh, I remember when our, our kids are you know, teenagers and beyond now, but I remember when they were little. And uh, I remember one, one time where um, I'm thinking, um, I'm going to take my four-year-old son, Alan, who's almost 21 now, and uh, I'm going to invite him to work on the car with dad, right? We're going to have some good father sometime, and he's going to help out dad. And, and of course, dads, we know what, what that means is the project's going to take you know, twice as long as it would if I did it myself. But I love my kid, I love my son, and we're going to do some dad's son time. And I remember one time we were changing the oil. I got my car up on, on jack stands in the driveway, and, and I was real careful. I made sure he was nowhere near the jacks or under the car. He's in the garage, you know, staying there. Mama's watching and helping. And, um, and so I'm, oh, look, look, here's the ratchet. We've got we to gotta find a, a 14 millimeter here. Okay, here it is, right? And, and we got, okay, you stay there, son. Dad's going to go under the car and, and, and get the, uh, uh, the drain plug out and, and uh, so I'm under the car, and I'll never forget this. I'll never forget the sound of this. I'm under the car, and all of a sudden I hear this, pling, 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 and and he had found he had found my socket set, grabbed a four-year-old handful of you know the little bits that you put in the end of the uh, the driver like a screwdriver, and he thought, let's make them look like fireworks, and he threw them in the air, and what I heard was the sound of uh, socket 
uh, uh, sockets and, and these little drill bit thingies hitting the inside of my engine compartment while I'm under the car. And <laughs> we laugh about it now. Um, uh, as, oh. So thankfully, he wasn't near the car or whatever. He was just being a four-year-old. And, uh, and to, you know, to this day, I still have that ratchet set, and there are bits missing because we never did find some of those things. We found most of them, but not all of them. So, so that car's long gone, and there's, bit, there's bits embedded in the engine bay there. And, uh, and you know, I think about that, and I think it took too long. It took forever to pull those out. But you know what? It was still a great moment with my son. Even though the effort on his part was not perfect, it was a four-year-old effort. And I, I can't help but think that our Heavenly Father, as we make efforts in ministry, make efforts in our Christian life, uh, he probably feels a lot like I did that day. Well, you know, there, There's little Pastor Keith, four years old in his spiritual walk with God. Um, but God is pleased, just like I was pleased that my son joined me that day. We laugh about that now. Um, and many other memories, you know, you know, the cards where, you know, your daughter comes up, look, mommy, I drew a picture of you. And you're like, yeah, that looks just like me. Yeah. And, but, but you don't go, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? You're, you're honored by that. You find joy in that as a parent. And I think that's a bit of what Paul's talking about here, that God is pleased to help us to grow, recognizing that our efforts are largely imperfect. Okay. The key, though, is that ongoing faith is the key ingredient, right? Ongoing faith in sanctification is the the key ingredient. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, remain in me. That means trust me and keep relying on me. When, When Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me, what he's saying is keep trusting, keep depending on me. And as he goes on to say there, apart from me, you can do nothing. So ongoing faith is the reality. Jesus says, uh, or the writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, as Jesus is is described as the sympathetic high priest, um, he says, therefore, we can go boldly to the throne of grace, right? To receive mercy and grace to help. So ongoing faith that leans on Christ for the provisions of grace to grow is the key ingredient. Okay, and, and lest we be confused, there's a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that shows us that sanctification is fueled by faith. Okay, so if we take what we've talked about now and we put this in a little chart, we can compare and contrast justification and sanctification, which is part of what you have to do. Explain faith's role in both of these. Well, in justification, we recognize that justification is unilateral and monergistic. What does that mean? Unilateral means one party acts. God alone is acting to save. Monergistic means the work being done in the transaction of conversion is God alone. That's what monergistic means. In contrast, sanctification is bilateral. It involves two parties, both God and the believer are working, and it is synergistic, right? Uh, we talk about a hybrid vehicle today, is, is an electric motor and a gasoline engine working together. Well, that's synergism. In sanctification, God is working through the effort of the believer. That's very important to see. Unlike a Toyota Prius, where you've got an electric motor and, a, and a, a gasoline engine working together, that analogy breaks down because we know that even the believer's effort and work is only effective because God is energizing and working through that effort by means of his spirit. So synergistic 
but ultimately empowered by God. We know that justification is a one-time event, right? Not guilty, but righteous. Whereas sanctification is an ongoing process. In justification, faith is the instrumental cause in the context of a legal transaction, whereas sanctification, it is ongoing faith, right? It's, it's Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And that leads us in the path of sanctification. And of course, it's not a legal transaction, it's a life transformation picture. Do you see that? See how they're similar, but also different? Okay, got some resources here. Uh, again, you're familiar with most of these. Uh, really, if you haven't seen it, check out the Gospel and Balance in Dr. Scott's chapter there in Christ Center Biblical Counseling. You can also Google it. Uh, he has some material online, the Gospel and Balance. Really, really good at making sure we're not we're not leaning on um, our effort too much, that we're, we're, we're working on our salvation, but we're leaning on Christ, but also that we don't fall on the other side and say, I'm just leaning on Christ and I'm not working out my sanctification. So Dr. Scott has helped us there. Okay, let me pray and I'll get you guys to first in line in the lunch table. Okay, uh, Father, thank you again for the glories of the gospel, both in justification and sanctification. Thank you for the finished work of Christ that accomplishes both and we pray that we would continue to lean on Christ to abide with him as we seek to grow more into his image empowered by your spirit Lord thank you for the privilege of knowing you in Christ and thank you Lord that these doctrines will help us to better care for people as we engage them in counseling conversations in Jesus name amen